know, this market just uh, kind of continues on. And again, if you take a look at the headlines from the financial media, it's, it's like we've been through a major bear market. Markets are down almost 2% for the month of September. It's terrible. Um, it's a 2% correction. I mean, <laughs> you know, that can normally happen in the span of one or two days. It's taken eight days to kind of grind its way down here. And again, this has just been because of that very, we've had a very rapid rotation uh, within the markets. You know, one day it's technology that's holding up the markets. The next day it's financials. The next day it's industrials and energy. And then the next day it's discretionary and staples, right? And it's just been this rotation throughout the market that just continues to hold stock prices up. It keeps that correction from happening because there's enough buying underneath the surface to keep stocks supported here. Now, again, that's just fine. But I guess the question really becomes, you know, if you take a look at yesterday's inflation print, a little bit we a little bit softer than expected on CPI. So that's kind of got, you know, kind of investors, you know, hopeful that, you know, weaker economic data, weaker, uh, softer inflation data will keep the Fed from tapering. And that really seems to be the only thing that, that investors are, are hanging their hat on, despite the fact that if you take a look at the economic data, it's actually weakening and slowing down rather sharply. So we're getting a much bigger detachment between asset prices and actually underlying fundamentals. And that's just a, simply a function that investors are afraid of missing out. So they're kind of just ignoring the fundamentals because they're kind of just hoping stock prices will keep going up. At this point, it kind of seems to be a little bit of a dangerous game. What do you think? Yeah, I think that's exactly right. You know, we're hearing more and more from people who have been out of the market or been more conservative thinking like, OK, well, clearly they're not going to allow this to end. Should we continue on? And I think that becomes a, a really difficult proposition. You know, as we see, you know, you said eight days. It took eight days for a 2 percent correction and CNBC and everybody else is freaking out. <laughs> Markets in turmoil that used to occur. Yeah. <laughs> That was in the span of an hour two years ago. Right. <laughs> um, you know, and in my how our mindset has changed so quickly. And I think we start looking behind the, the scenes, we start to see a little bit different picture, especially, you know, talking about you alluded to the, the Census Bureau right. and, and their new numbers of what they just showed. That suggests something a little bit different than what everybody expected. And I think, you know, when you start to dive into those numbers, you see it, you see a little bit different picture than what everyone thought or thinks that we are right now. Yeah. Well, and look, and the Census Bureau is, is kind of an interesting thing because, again, this is the problem that, you know, and I do a lot of analysis that looks at, you know, this economic data that we get, and I kind of break it down and look at it, try to look at it a little bit differently. And, and one of those is disposable personal incomes. And and, and I love, one of my favorite is debt to income ratios that uh, gets put out by the media. It's like, look, everybody's fine. Everybody deleveraged during the financial crisis. And right now we've got very low debt to income ratios. Not actually the case. Um, you have very low debt to income ratios for people in the top 10% of income earners. But for the bottom 80%, they actually have more debt than they had before because they're the ones that are out of work. They're the ones that didn't have a lot of cushion to start with. And they're the ones that had to go further into debt during the, the pandemic shutdown. So their debt to income ratios are substantially higher than those in the top 20%. But we, you know, it's this, and this has happened, you know, very much over the last really 10, 20 years. We've had this big skewing of, of wealth. Um, between the top 10 and 20% of the economy and everybody else. And so all these traditional statistics that we look at, household income ratios, debt to income ratios, anything that involves households in general, 
unless you break it down and look at it in, in either deciles or quintiles, it's very misleading at the surface because those top 10% skew the data for everybody else. That's right. Even the median numbers are, are, are difficult to look at. But mm -hmm. those went down, actually, or, or increased for those under the poverty line. You know, we increased that poverty number by 3.3 million people from right. 2019 to 2020. Right. That's a lot. You know, if we look at 2020 median household income, that was down to 67,500, which is down about 2.9%. These are numbers that we were told that everything was okay, everything was going up. And they were if you included the unemployment, if you included all the other stuff that's right. out there, um, you know, and thinking about the stuff that they didn't include, which was stimulus checks, non-cash benefits like federal food programs. Those, if, if those were counted, we actually saw an increase, but a rather very, very small increase, but we still saw that definition of poverty, right. which is at $26,000 in 2020, that actually saw more people under that than we have before. Right. And look, and that's just, uh, you know, this is just a function of, of what we've done economically as well. You know, this and I'm actually writing an article on this right now is that and, and actually I think it's coming out on Monday that, you know, there's all these people that continue to deny that running deficits and debts is, is a problem. Right. It's like, well, and they try to use Japan as the as the kind of the poster boy for massive debts. Right. Oh, they're 250 percent of GDP. They haven't all collapsed yet. I'm not sure you want to be Japan. <laughs> you know, I think you've got to pick your poster child of, of what you want to be like. And, you know, there is clear evidence that, you know, continuing to run debts and deficits, you know, impact economic growth. It, it creates this wealth disparity you have within the economy. It's it, it increases your poverty levels, reduces your incomes. You know, there's a Miss Shedlock, a good friend of ours uh, on the show, just had an article out yesterday. Since 1979, real wages have only risen by eight cents an hour, um, you know, after inflation and all this stuff. So, you know, it's hard to and, and of course, economic growth and what's happened with prices of homes and everything else has just been a, a has risen a whole lot more. So when you're talking about sixty seven thousand five hundred, you go, wow, that sounds great. Um, people are making, you know, the average median income is sixty seven thousand five hundred dollars. Sounds awesome. Problem is, is it takes almost $70,000 to raise a family of four. And we run analysis on a regular basis here on the show, um, looking at the gap between what people have in terms of incomes, the cost of living, and how much they have to go into debt every year just to sustain that level of, of living. And that's about $4,000 a year going into debt every year. That's after they deplete their savings, after they spend all their income, they've got to put another 4000 on the credit card. But this is why we have re record credit card. If that wasn't true, by the way, we wouldn't have record credit card debt and you wouldn't have everybody struggling, you know, <laughs> with trying to. You, Dave Ramsey wouldn't have a show if if, <laughs> if the, it wouldn't have 80 million followers um, on his website paying for his his advice if credit card debt wasn't a problem. That That's a really good point. And I think that's one that that, you know, everybody needs to keep in mind is that. These things haven't gone away. They're going to continue for some time. And look at the CPI numbers and you look at wages. Wages have not grown. And in fact, with, with the inflation aspect mm -hmm. of it, you know, it, you're you're in trouble. A lot of people are. Yeah. Well, and that's and this and this is kind of the big misnomer, right? We take a look at things like uh, auto prices, house prices, and and Michael Leibowitz recently did an article looking at how the Fed calculates homeowners equivalent rent versus actual home prices and actual rental prices, and they have nothing to do with each other. But the problem is, is that wages aren't keeping up 
with what's happening inflation-wise. Now, the problem for the Fed is, and this is you know something we'll talk about after the break, is you know yeah, inflation was mildly softer yesterday than expectations, but inflation, CPI, PPI, etc., are all up sharply this year, and wages aren't keeping up with that. So even the fact we're seeing wage increases on a nominal basis, they're not keeping up with inflation. And we're also, and, and when we look at where those income increases are occurring, they're occurring at the lowest end of the wage scale, which is not supportive of the entire economy. So it's a very different story when you start talking about where markets are currently and what's happening economically underneath the surface. And, and this is why we keep hoping for either the Fed to continue uh, with their monetary interventions or another big stimulus bill of some sort coming out of Washington, you know, we, that's that short-term Band-Aid. But we have to be start to seriously think about, great, another $5 trillion in debt um, on top of our $4 trillion annual spending run rate. So add another $8 trillion in debt over the course of the next year. We've got to start seriously thinking about what's the impact of that on long-term economic growth because that's why we can't get economic growth growing. And, and we keep going, we keep reverting back to this 2% growth rate is because of the, the weight of the debt. And I know we don't want to acknowledge that. I know we don't want to talk about it because it's not fun, but debt's a problem. Whether you're a household or a government, debt matters. Yeah, we're, we're way past austerity though, Lance. I mean, there's no way these guys are gonna go for that. Just tax the rich. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Well, we talked a little bit about that yesterday, but <laughs> that's a whole nother show. <laughs> on, yeah, absolutely. On the on that. So, all right, when we come back from the break, I do want to talk a little bit about inflation in particular as it relates to the Federal Reserve, because again, that soft print yesterday's what's got bulls a little bit hopeful this morning. And again, markets look like they're going to open up on this idea that maybe the Fed's going to have to hold off on taper. But uh, again, um, Fed may be in a tough spot here. Talk about that when we come back from the break with Danny Ratliff. Don't go away. Before we get back into our topic here, just wanted to uh, have Danny remind you. Uh, of course, Danny is going to be at a live event, right, in person. I mean, like people standing up there and, and people getting together and getting fed and, you know, going back to back to reality. <laughs> this is the way we, the way we used to do things. Uh, we have a special event at this live event will be a special event. We will be launching hundred dollar bills and there'll be a race between Danny and whoever else <laughs> to get to the hundred dollar bills. <laughs> let me, let me tell you, my money's not on myself. Here. <laughs> so, uh, but seriously, uh, when's the event? Where is it? What are we doing? It's going to be this Saturday at the Hyatt Centric in the Woodlands right there at Market Street. Um, it is going to be a big deal because I have not been out of the house in three months. So <laughs> you guys don't know behind the scenes. I yell at my wife like, hey, shut the blender off. We're, we're live. <laughs> uh, no, kidding, but uh, not kidding. So, no, we, we'd love to see you guys out. We do have a couple spots left. This is our retirement right lane. This is probably our most popular um, event that we host each year. And so we're going to talk about all those things that are important to you, especially right now. Markets are at highs. How do you invest? Where do you put money in light of what's potentially coming down the pipe in regards to taxes? I think this is going to be the big hot topic right now. How do you diversify assets amongst just registration of accounts? All those things we talk about, Roth conversions, can we still do those? Um, all of these things I think are going to be extremely important and a lot of questions. So we do stick around, answer questions afterwards. So we're, we're looking forward to this event. So go to realinvestmentadvice.com. 
you can sign up right there. We do have a couple of spots left. We'd love to see you guys out there. Yeah. So it's realinvestmentadvice.com. Also, you've got one coming up in Austin here, too. Um, when, when is that one? That one's going to be October 16th. October 16th in Austin. So if you're in Austin, we'd love to see you there at the event on October the 16th. And, of course, this weekend here in Houston at the Woodlands Hyatt. Uh, just simply go by the website, realinvestmentadvice.com. Scroll down the homepage right there. You'll see all of our events listed right there on the page. You can click on the event you want, get registered, and we'll certainly get taken care of. Um, all right, so just before we left off and a few topics I kind of want to just hit this segment in particular, you know, we've got a few things to cover from – you know, CPI and inflation and the Fed's taper, which is kind of the most important thing for the markets near term, but also um, some other issues that are kind of coming down the pike, regardless to, you know, regarding kind of new tax rules and tax changes and those type of things. But just real quick, your opinion. I mean, uh, you know, inflation came in a bit weaker yesterday, but median CPI actually a brand new record for that. So, you know, we were talking about wages as an example. And when you get the headline data on wages, it says, oh, wages were up, you know, six, you know, six cents an hour, you know, last month or whatever. You know, and we go, wow, we've had this massive wage growth this year. But, you know, again, this is the, that, those data points. You've really got to step back. And the headline sounds great. But you, when you step back, you find out that those wage increases were primarily at the lower end. But unfortunately, not even keeping up with a real rate of inflation. So I think the Fed's really getting themselves into a, a, a problem here. Um, you've got employment that is pushing near full employment in terms of the actual metric of unemployment rate. But the Fed's got to be looking at the fact that you've got, you know, roughly 2.2 jobs available for every person that's unemployed. So, you know, there's no reason you should not, you should be sitting at home right now saying you can't find a job you either don't really want to find a job or you just don't want the jobs that are available but jobs are available and you know the fed sitting here going at some point you know they've got this inflationary pressure they've got they really do have full employment by different metrics you know they've got to start thinking about tapering their balance sheet well and speaking of employment we went i mean i think we forget we went from a 50-year low to a high of almost 15 percent and, you know, we have a lot of unintended consequences that have occurred here because that wealth gap is only it's only increased. Right. We haven't seen what, you know, what everybody was hoping for, and especially now that stimulus is running out. There's a whole other problem that I think we're going to be presented with from that wage growth, you know, tying that to inflation, because I'm still talking to lots of different people in, in manufacturing and they have a lot of different um, concerns surrounding inflation that it's not it's not going to here for the next couple of months. That supply chain disruption is still there, and a lot of materials are still hard to get. Well, and that's so, that's, that's one of the problems for the Fed. You know, the Fed was kind of under this idea. It's like, oh, we're going to keep doing taper because we think this inflationary problem is transient. But all of a sudden, it may not be so transient. And we talked about this a little bit on Monday. You know, we had the, the hurricane that hit Louisiana. Uh, then that hurricane went north. Uh, Ida went north to the northeast and then flooded them dramatically in, in the northeast. And fortunately, this uh, Hurricane Nicholas, that, our tropical storm, did it ever actually make it to hurricane status? It did. So we had this Hurricane 1, you know, status come through with Nicholas, but it did very minimal damage. But, you know, any type of event like that where you shut down production or you cause flooding or there's damage that you've got to, you know, you need goods immediately to replace those things uh, and to rebuild New Orleans as an example – that only further exacerbates the supply chain problem because now you've just added an incremental level of demand that wasn't there before. 
uh, and for products that already couldn't be filled. So, you know, this potentially makes this transient inflation a lot more sticky than maybe what the Fed thought. So, you know, kind of, you know, I'm wondering if the Fed's getting themselves in a position where they are almost forced to start tapering their balance sheet sooner rather than later uh, to try to get ahead of the inflation. The, the biggest risk for the Fed is being behind the curve. Well, I think the Fed's always behind the curve, though. I mean, because they're always, they're always going to wait for the data versus trying to get out in front of it. And that's going to that's going to pose that other problem. And that's why, you know, we look back to mid 2010s. I mean, they had a problem with with doing it then. I mean, after the, the Great Recession, they couldn't they couldn't figure this out. Right. I don't think we're going to figure this out in, ti- in a timely manner here. And when we do, it'll be too late in the market throw a fit. Right. Well, and that, and that's going to be that again. That'll be the big issue. Uh, and again, the the Fed meets just just keep things in sequence. We've got a Fed meeting coming up next week. I believe it's next week, it's the twenty second, twenty third. Um, so we've got the Fed coming up. Potentially get an announcement of at least the schedule for taper. Uh, if they don't actually taper in September, likely the schedule they'll probably come out with a schedule uh, this next week at the meeting saying, hey, um, we're going to start to taper in say November. Uh, and lay out kind of the time frame for that $15 billion a month, whatever it is. Now, the markets are going to shake this off initially. It's like, okay, yeah, yeah, they're going to taper it. We kind of expected that, so it's all good. It's all priced in. We had a 2% correction to price in <laughs> the reduction of $15 billion a month in liquidity. Um, so it'll take a little bit of time. But from the time of that first taper, typically you've got about nine months before the markets wind up in trouble. Now, what will increase that probability is if they start hiking rates at the same time. So they're tapering, and then they actually start talking about hiking rates. That's going to shrink that timeline between you know this this point to where the markets begin to react negatively. And again, you know, at some point, the markets will catch up with fundamentals, and that's always your biggest risk. The question is just the timing and what eventually causes it. Now, Lance, what do you do to the yield curve in the short term? Well, I mean, you know, look, yields are coming down already. We had that CPI print yesterday. Yields fell um, back below 1.3%. So, again, as as yields keep coming down here, you're going to get a suppression of the yield curve. And, again, there's three things. We wrote an article about this just recently on our website. It's called uh, go to realinvestmentadvice.com, and it's the three things for the three things that will signal the next bear market. And those three things are simply the Fed starting to taper their purchases, right? So that's coming. Uh, the Fed hiking interest rates, that's coming, but later next year, probably. And the third thing is the yield curve. So watch, and it's not all three of those things that will cause a problem. It's any one of the three. Uh, so watch what's happening here. But those are the big three indicators that will tell you really when you need to start getting much more conservative with your portfolio allocations, start thinking about, you know, reducing your risk, et cetera. You know, I get a lot of emails right now going, you know, I'm really concerned about the markets. Well, Danny and I are too, right? <laughs> but there's no sign right now that this is a time to be very negative on markets. Uh, we've done things in our portfolio to hedge risk. We've done things to increase our cash a little bit, uh, lengthen the duration of our bond portfolio, which acts as a hedge during a market decline, lower the beta of, of our portfolio by doing you know good selections of stocks that we want to own. So those are things you can do right now, but you know the markets are still rising. We're probably going to bounce off this 50-day moving average. We we'll, we won't know really until next week. We've got to get through options expiration this week. There's still going to be downward pressure on stocks for the next couple of days as we go through options expiration, but likely next week the markets are oversold enough here that we're going to get a rally. 
And so we certainly want to participate on that. So the big risk that, that individuals are making right now is taking a macro view, which we're talking about here. Yeah, down the road here in the next 18, 24, 36 months, whenever it is, you're going to have a reversion in the markets if the Fed is hiking rates and tapering their purchases and we're getting slower economic growth and you're getting a yield curve inversion. If all those things start showing up, the markets are going are going to respond negatively. But that can be a while. And you know, as we've talked about before here on the show, there's two ways to damage your long-term financial outcomes. One is is to suffer the downturn in the market. So you lose 30, 40, 50% of your money, and then you spend five years getting back to even. That really damages your long-term investment potential and your financial goals. The other way to damage it is to miss the run-up. Because that is just as devastating to your long-term goals and financial plan as suffering a correction. So you have to participate when markets are rising. You have to avoid the, the market downturns. And that's not easy, right? This, these buy-and-hold mentalities, these buy-and-hold armchair strategies, I'm writing an article on this now. Buy-and-hold is great as long as the markets are going up. Buy-and-hold is not how you want to be allocated when markets are going down. Because it's not average rates of return that matter. It's actual rates of return that matter. And those are two very different things over time when it comes to your financial plan. We'll come back. I'll let Danny respond to that little comment about financial planning. And, and uh, we'll talk about IRA distributions as well, because we're getting a lot of people right now because of tax changes and having to pay taxes. <laughs> uh, some consequences with IRAs. We'll come back after the break with Danny Ratliff. Don't go away. Welcome back to the show this morning. Daniel Ratliff joining me. Why does Richard call you Mr. Smith every Friday? Is it the beer? Oh, man. Yeah, Smith cough drops. That's what he thinks, yeah. Okay. <laughs> I guess I missed that joke. <laughs> um, so just for the break, talking a little bit about you know, the impact of losses and even the impact of missing gains. Cause again, we, I, we, I get a lot of emails. I know you do too, but I get a lot of emails of people going, Hey, I'm out of the market or I've got a tremendous amount of cash right now. Cause I'm scared of the market, et cetera. Hey, I get that. I, you know, I, I, I'm terrified of the markets where they are right now. Uh, then, you know, we have more stocks in the S&P 500 trading at 10 and 20 times price to sales than at any other point in history ever by a large margin. Um, it's, it's phenomenal how overpriced on a variety of measures the market is. And look, that's a consequence for down the road. But, you know, we can't let that, we have to understand it, right? We have to understand it. We have to accept it. We have to acknowledge it. We have to be aware of it. But it can't deter us from investing just because we're afraid of it. Um, and, and this is because it does have con missing gains, as I said, has just as big of a consequence when you're running financial plans. You know, this is an important part of the financial plan is making sure that there's a rate of return, uh, what you call a hurdle rate to meet those financial goals. And if you don't make, make that hurdle rate, either by making gains or, or accepting a lot of losses, you've got problems. That's right. And so when we're doing this, we're trying to stress financial plans and stress the assets to make sure that you can you can beat these different times that we may or may not go through. Mm -hmm. But if we're sitting in cash all along the way, we're likely never going to beat that hurdle rate. That hurdle rate is usually always more than what we can go get in a money market, a savings account, a CD. And that's where the problem lies is that, you know, we can be so concerned with the the drops, 
that we miss out on the whole run up. And you've seen it many, many times where people got out of the market in, in big time crisis and they never dipped their toes back in. And that's where we see larger problems come and that they occur. And you know, it's it's funny, we're having, we have lots of conversations with people and concerning you know markets and where things are and, and, and how we manage money. And the, the interesting thing is we were having the same conversations three, four, five years ago that markets were expensive. There were there were certainly problems on the horizon or already here, debts and deficits. I mean, all of these things are still right here. Mm-hmm. Yet we're we're four or five years down the road and markets are still they're still going up. Now, that doesn't mean that's going to always occur, but I think that also brings home the point you need to have a strategy. You need to make sure that you know how to hedge a portfolio. And you have to do a little bit of both. And so it doesn't have to be all one or all the other, but I think it's really important to understand that if you have that discipline to to manage, I mean, truly manage money, you can still do very well. And as long as you can mitigate those losses along the way, and you don't get too far out in front of your skis, that's another problem. Mm-hmm. We see people get a little bit of confidence and then they get very confident and, and that can become an issue as well. But from a financial planning standpoint, I mean, that is, it's a plan killer if you just sit there and do nothing. And so, you know, but that brings a good point. We had a question on YouTube, Lance, in regard to, you know, how do we hedge a portfolio compared to what most people would do versus a buy and hold? Right. Well, and again, there's, you know, there's several ways to do that. And, and again, real quick before I get to answer that part of the question, it's important to also understand that when you're doing financial plans, you know, this is the, the big misnomer. And I think one of the real tragedies that we inflict on individuals through the financial media, which is always to compare stuff to the S&P. You know, the S&P 500 as a benchmark is terrible to use because the benchmark pays no taxes, has no fees, has no required distributions of assets because of income needs, um, doesn't uh, uh, be, it's not affected by a company going bankrupt. If a company goes bankrupt inside of the S&P index, they simply just take it out, put a new company in, and the index rebalances itself. The, The impact on your portfolio when that company goes bankrupt and you've got to replace it is much more dramatic to your long term returns. And this is one of the big fallacies of the markets. People go, well, the average mutual fund manager doesn't beat the S&P 500. Of course not. The mutual fund manager has to pay expenses. They have they have payrolls they have to pay. They have to make distributions to investors by paying out dividends or capital gains or whatever it is. They they don't get to substitute a stock just because it goes bankrupt in their portfolio. They don't get the same benefits as this imaginary index. And so to make claims that you can beat the index over time is ludicrous because the only way you can beat the index over time is to take a tremendous amount of risk in your portfolio to get there. And if your hurdle rate is 3 or 4% of a year to, to get to your goals safely, effectively on time, and you're taking on the risk to beat a benchmark index, you know, the devastation that will eventually occur by chasing that index is going to massively impair your financial plan long term. So it's important to have the right benchmark. Okay. But to that question, you know, how do you hedge? There's, there's some very basic ways to hedge that it's not complicated. Just simply go raise some cash. It doesn't mean sell everything and be all in cash. It just means that, hey, look, if you bought a stock and it doubled in price, here's some really basic rules for your portfolio. You buy a stock, it doubles in price, you just sell half. You take your principal back off the table, now you're playing with the market money. If it goes to zero, you still have your principal, right? Um, But by selling some along the way, taking in your profits, 
when the stock price declines, you've got the ability to buy some back um, at a lower price and continue to grow your position over time. So cash is great. Cash is an awesome hedge because no matter what happens, it doesn't lose value. So if I want to hedge a portfolio and I want to lower the beta, all I got to do is just raise some cash. So I go from 100% invested in equities to 80% or 75%, and, and I'm still participating with the market, but I've got 20% in cash. Our portfolio right now is 20% cash, and we're still outperforming our benchmark by 300 basis points this year. So, you know, it can be done. Uh, the other side is think about bonds, um, you know, not necessarily corporate bonds, not necessarily, you know, high yield bonds because those uh, maintain a lot of risk, just like the financial markets, but treasury bonds. Yeah, they don't pay a lot in interest right now, but they're a risk off position. You'll notice that when markets decline, generally yields on bonds decline and, and the prices of bonds are going up. 10-year treasuries make a great hedge for the portfolio. So we maintain a, a position of, of treasury bonds in our portfolio that are short, intermediate, longer-term duration bonds. And we adjust those allocations uh, to, to measure our duration. In other words, what's the average length of maturity of that portfolio? Because as interest rates decline, the longer end of the curve performs better. So we can adjust that duration to get a longer exposure. So when interest rates decline, those go up more. That offsets any potential decline a bit to a degree in the equity portfolio. Then, of course, the more aggressive way to hedge, obviously, is to add a short position to your portfolio. You can use something like SH, which is an ETF that's a is the inverse of the S&P 500. I wouldn't recommend using leveraged short positions because unless you know what you're doing, there's other things involved in leverage in terms of options uh, uh, optionality and, and those things. The, the roll off those options impair the, the underlying value of that ETF. So just stay with the unleveraged version. But if you really wanted to try to hedge downside, if, let's say you're 75% long equity and you want to hedge... 25% of it, you add 25% of your cash into SH, and now you're only 50% exposed to the markets because you've got this short position hedging 25% of your portfolio. So easy ways to hedge, just you have to choose how much risk you're willing to take. Now, if you really want to be a lot more aggressive, you can buy out-of-the-money puts. Um, you know, we do that with our, our what we call our platinum portfolios, which are kind of where we manage for family offices and high net worth individuals. We buy out of the money puts to hedge those positions. There's a lot of things you can do, a lot of strategies, and, it, and you can go from very simplistic, just raising cash, to being very complex, writing out of the money put options, etc. To do these things, you just have to choose A, what you're familiar with, B, what you're comfortable with, and what you and, and making sure that you know what you're doing. So, you know, you know, all as, as is always the case where investors get themselves into trouble is start dabbling into things they really don't understand, like buying options. A lot of people buy options betting that they're gonna go up in price. That's awesome. They don't understand that when options you know expire, they expire worthless and you lose all your money. And more often than not, investors lose money and options more than they make it. So uh, and then they go, I don't really understand this. And that's that's why. So just make sure you understand what you're doing before you do it. But yeah, lots of easy ways to hedge your portfolio. Danny? Yeah, no, I think those are great points. And, and that kind of brings it home. Um, you know, make sure when we go back to that financial plan, you're looking at the big picture. I think when you talked about the index, Lance, that's really important for, for people to understand because of those reasons. But also, you're historically not invested 100% in the stock market. And if you were, well, then maybe that's a, that's an accurate benchmark. 
And but even then, are you an international? Are you in small cap? Are you in, you know, we have many different benchmarks out there for a reason. And so make sure you understand what you're invested in, how you're invested and what the overall impact to that plan is, I think is really important. So I know we don't have a whole lot of time, Lance, but we, mm -hmm. we've been getting a lot of questions on um, IRA, RMD distributions, especially for inherited IRAs. And so I want to spend just a second on that. Um, you know, the CARES Act actually gave everybody a pass last year that we were actually able to, to defer or delay RMDs for 2020. 2021 is not the case. Now we do have a new bill that came through and actually says now for a non-spousal IRA, you actually have to, for somebody who passed after January 1st, 2020, they actually, you have a 10 year window when you must take a distribution. This is a little bit different. If somebody passed prior to this time, you're on a set schedule. You must take those RMDs out based on the uniform life tables that the IRS gives you. If somebody passes after that date, you have to take it out only within that 10 year time frame. So a little bit different. Talk to your CPA about this. So um, lots of questions we're getting around surrounding this issue, especially as we get closer to the end of the year and we're hearing all this rumble about taxes. And don't forget to get by the website, realinvestmentadvice.com. Get registered for this weekend's live event at the at, in Woodlands. It's on the website now, realinvestmentadvice.com. And while you're there, there's an Ask a Question button right at the top. And if you've got a question about an IRA distribution, et cetera, just click the Ask a Question button. Say, I've got a question for Danny. Here's my IRA situation I'm dealing with. What can you do to help me out? Happy to do it. Simply go by the website, realinvestmentadvice.com. Our latest blog posts are out. Our newsletter is out. Our daily market commentary will be out very shortly on the website. Make sure you're subscribed. Comes right to your email inbox every morning. Make sure you're ready for the trading day. It's all on the website. It's an amazing amount of information there. You just got to go check it out, realinvestmentadvice.com. We'll see you back here tomorrow. Danny, thank you so much. It's a rich man's world